Hello. Thank you very much, everybody, for coming on Friday for our Friday Gallery Talk. Uh, my name is Milena Kalinowska, and I'm Director of Public Programs and Education here at the Hiron Museum. And today we have with us uh, Patrick Lochny, uh, and he will be talking about Bruce Conner's video work report just around the corner here, which I think is a remarkable piece of work. Patrick is Executive Director of the National Audiovisual Conservation Center for the Library of Congress, which acquires, preserves, and provides access to the world's largest and most comprehensive collection of movies, television programs, radio broadcast, and sound recordings. He was just telling me that some of it is in terms of millions, not even thousands. He has also served as a curator of the motion picture department at George Eastman House, director of the L. Jeffrey Selznick School of Film Preservation, and adjunct faculty for the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. His PhD from George Washington University is in American Studies. Please help me to welcome Patrick Lockney. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Milena. Uh, I will suggest that maybe we look at some of the film first before I uh, share my pearls of wisdom with you about what is going on. So if we can maybe adjourn, is that all right, Caroline? We do that? Okay. Let's all go in and we'll just... It's about 12 or 13 minutes, so let's, let's watch it. It's in cycle, so it may not see it from the very beginning, but as you'll see, it, it doesn't really matter what point you come in and see the film. Anybody who has a question, just raise your hand as I'm talking. I'm happy to, to uh, answer or try to answer any question you may have. Um, my particular background in, in cinema is as an archivist, curator, and a librarian. And in a museum world and in the context of any library, movies have a dual existence and a, and a dual way of, of, of approaching them. One, uh, which we're all familiar with through critics and observers of art, is, is understanding or appreciating what the art is about, what the artist is trying to say, what's, what are the ideas being expressed in the work of art itself. In the world in which I inhabit, we're also very concerned about the physical nature of the work. That is, what is the medium what is, the, what is the physical expression that has to be conserved and saved so that the work of art can continue to go on and be enjoyed by future generations? And so that's what I want to start talking about at the very beginning here is, is what is it we're looking at and, and what was, was, was Bruce Conner working with as a physical medium so he could express the ideas that are in this film? And the original film was shot on 16 millimeter, and I'm going to ask Caroline to, to just unspool that and hand it around so you can actually touch it and, and see it and pull it down so you can actually look at the images. Because this is what Connor was, was working with and what he intended for you to be seeing today, now after he's dead. This is the work of art that he wants to continue for future generations to see. Uh, Connor himself was a child of the 60s and very much part of the counterculture movement and his artistic work expresses very much his view and his skepticism about American society at the time. When the Kennedy assassination occurred, he was as shocked and disturbed and upset as Americans in all walks of life, indeed as people in, around the world were upset. And he chose to express his feelings in this particular film that's going on next door. But we need to go back in the history of technology and in the history of movies before the internet before 24-7 news cycles and understand what is it what he was reacting to. And there are two basic works that 
that inform this particular film. First is the Zapruder film. How many of you know what the Zapruder film is? All right. That's the, the home movie made by Abraham Zapruder of the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy in Dallas. It's the only film record, the only audiovisual record of the work that actually records or documents the assassination. And yet, after that film was, was, was exposed, it had a very limited uh, public exhibition. There were frame enlargements that were included in Life magazine. And to tell you how far back in terms of media history in the US that was, CBS and Life magazine tried to bid for the rights to, to display the images from that film, and Life magazine won because they had more money and they could buy the rights to show the film and, and use frame enlargement in a magazine, not on television. And so it was not publicly seen, partly because on television people were, were, didn't think the American or world public was ready to see a, an assassination of a president on television. So Connor, like many people, was very frustrated about having access to the film. Let's see this horrible event, as, as horrific as it was. And so he was forced to go to secondary sources to make this movie. He had to obtain copies of radio broadcasts, so that's some of the soundtrack you're hearing. He filmed with 16 millimeter some of the TV reports that were going on from a television screen. So he was dealing with secondary and, 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 and not original source materials. And that's what the film partly gets at is, what is the truth of this assassination? The other document that he was working and reacting against was the Warren Commission report, which came out about one year after the assassination and which I'm sure all of you know was, was controversial from the day it was released with many doubters, many people developing assassination theories and so on, which, which go on to this very day. People who think that the Warren Commission was false, was wrong, and, and Connor was a person who was very skeptical about American society, who believed that there was something very wrong going on in America, uh, before the assassination, he and his wife had moved out of the U.S. and, and to, to move to Mexico. And then he came back and he was fascinated by Kennedy. Like many others, he was caught up in a fascination by the new possibilities for America with his young, beautiful couple of Jackie and John F. Kennedy. And so when the assassination occurred, he was devastated, but he also began to tried to document in this film what he saw to be the evils and the, the downside of American society. So he incorporates found footage. He incorporates scenes from feature films. You'll see in this film uh, short scenes from Frankenstein, the James Whale film produced by Universal in 1930. There's also scenes from the 1930 film um, All Quiet on the Western Front. That's the World War I footage and the machine guns and the explosions going on. He also was very skeptical of the, of the ceremony of American culture and American life, so he cuts footage of Kennedy meeting with the Pope, intercuts it with the bullfight sequence, and bullfight sequences and bullfight pageantry being very formalistic, very religious in nature and in origins, as, as a way of creating this juxtaposition of images to deconstruct. He also mixes industrial footage, the secretary sitting in primly in her, in her desk. Those are, those are films, made industrial films, to sell refrigerators 
and to sell products to the American public. So by combining all this together in a seemingly random effect, Connor is just creating all these harsh juxtapositions of images and content to force people to think about what is the nature of America, what's going on, and why did this terrible event happen. So I, I did want to talk a bit about the physical nature of the film and the artifactual nature. I talked to a friend of mine named Andrew Lake, who is a, a curator at the Anthology Film Archives in New York. Now, Anthology Film Archives has the original of this particular film and has preserved it and other films in Bruce Connors' archive. In fact, Andrew worked with Bruce Connor to preserve this film and he learned an awful lot about it. Um, so that uh, what I can tell you is what Andrew has told me from working closely with, with, with Bruce Connor. Um, so that... Uh, he was fascinated by the fact that the, the, the Zapruder film was 26.6 seconds long. That that 8 millimeter visual record, is, which consists of 494 frames of film, is the only record. So he made eight different versions of this film between 1963 and 1967, because he was trying to perfect it and make it better. So some versions exist that are different. He also made, for various friends and other institutions, 8mm reduction copies. So if you're searching for the history of this film and you go to different institutions to see it, you might encounter different versions, and that's because Connor, just by the way he worked, was never quite satisfied with, with the, the final, so there's no, in a, in a sense, final version except the one he's touched last, which was the version produced in 1967, which is this version, this screening here. He shot footage from TV, as I said, he used found footage. The only film in here that, that is actually footage that, uh, images that are original to Bruce Connor, that is images that he created, are the sequence where you see black and white frames flashing, the strobe-like effect. And Connor achieved that effect by taking the lens out of his 16 millimeter camera and shooting film. So there's no focused image. But that footage in this film, and it exists in several places, is the only original footage created by Connor for the film. The rest is all used footage or found footage or footage that he took off the television or soundtrack material that he recorded off of radio or, or television broadcasts. And I, one other thing, he, in the versions that he was putting together, he was trying to keep it succinct and focused, not make it a long, long film. He was used to working with filmmakers like Stan Brackage and, and other avant-garde filmmakers of the time. And in fact, if you go to I think, two galleries over, you'll see a Stan Brackage film running actually on film. But he wanted to make a work that was concise and focused that tried to keep your thoughts oriented on the devastation of that assassination event. So, it, rather than a, a, other filmmakers of the time who were doing avant-garde films. Actually, Andy Warhol is an example. They often made films that would go on for two or three hours with very little going on in the film. And so, in a way, he's sort of setting himself apart from other American avant-garde filmmakers of the time. So, it's an interesting work, and I hope if you look at it again, you'll begin to look at it as a physical thing being projected for you and not as just a series of images that, that seem disconnected. Uh, and I would say forward, if you ever go in and, and see movies in a theater, it's always important to understand that, that the object of art is sitting behind you in a booth, often hidden away in a machine, and you're merely looking at a reflection of it bouncing off a screen and into your eyes so you can perceive the image. It's unlike any other form of art in that regard, 
that's in existence. So, um, but I hope you uh, can see this film now and understand some of the elements of it. If, if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to, uh, yes, sir. You say that he was photographing the TV. I mean, at the instantaneously, right at the assassination, he immediately took his camera out and started uh, photographing the TV? Shortly thereafter, because the coverage started um, within, uh, you may remember, as I do, that for over three days, all the American networks canceled all broadcasting, and they were all essentially broadcasting the Save Live Images. So he wanted to, he started filming the, the news reports within 24 hours. And so that's why you get a mix of, it seems to me in listening to one of these reports, it might even be Dan Rather's voice, though I have no confirmation of it because he was the CBS News Bureau chief in Dallas at the time. And he did some of the very earliest live television reporting about the assassination from Dallas. And that's really what helped make Dan Rather's career and launch it into being uh, eventually the, the main news anchor to replace uh, Charles, uh, uh, Cronkite, Walter Cronkite. But, uh, but he did, he was again frustrated by not having an immediate access to the visual and audiovisual evidence. So that's why he was, that's why he was recording off of television. Now we would take it for granted that there would be thousands of cell phones and cameras and people were recording if there's a live event like that today or something horrific. It, within minutes there would be things on YouTube about it and so on. And someone like Bruce Conner wanting to do now what he did then would have many different sources to go to. Um, and probably different camera angles, but his frustration was that he had to use these secondary sources. And the, I could, one last footnote about the Zapruder film, and it is, in fact, wasn't really publicly available, and it's only been used in a few documentaries and maybe some sequences in feature films a few times. It's the most expensive home movie ever made because it became part of the official evidence of the Kennedy assassination. And it was copyrighted by the Zapruder family. So the government just simply couldn't seize it and take it away from the Zapruder family. So a commission of appraisers was formed to estimate the value of this film to compensate the Zapruder family for surrendering that original 8mm film, which is now in the National Archives, by the way, out in College Park, Maryland. And the, the appraised value of that film was $16 million. And that's what the federal government paid to the Zapruder family for that film. It actually was settled in 1999. It took that long before the, the case and, and so on. And it was basically the evaluation was determined based on what revenue the Zapruder family could have made had they decided to sell copies to documentary filmmakers and let anybody use it or issue DVDs for sale or so on. And the Zapruder family didn't want to do that. I mean, they weren't trying to enrich themselves because they had the accident of having this film about that assassination. But that's basically, with congressional approval, what was determined to be a fair compensation for the value of that film, yes. Why was he filming? Was, what was his job? Was there some reason that he was? The recording of the Zapruder film was an accident. He had just bought a film camera the year before, and he was, happened to be in Dallas. And he decided to go to the event, and uh, one of his family insisted that he take a camera along because he wasn't planning to do that. And so he went, and a colleague of his was with him, 
and she, he was filming, but he was in an area where there was some crowd, and so he, to help steady him, somebody, a colleague of his, held him around the waist so that he could have a steady shot, because he was kind of leaning forward. But it was an accident. He didn't plan to make the film beforehand. He just had the camera, he had the film, and decided, okay, I'll shoot it, because somebody who, in his family, couldn't be there, wanted to see footage of Kennedy. So it's an accident that it really was made. Uh, he's, you know, he's a manufacturer, uh, and, and I'm, his family was from New York. His family originated uh, from, uh, immigrated from Russia in 1906. That's all I remember about him. But of course, there's information if you go to Wikipedia, you can get the, the, his, his biography. But he was just a, a man with a camera in the right place at the right time. And he happened to record history, yeah. And I think that's the frustration that Connor felt as he wasn't there, he couldn't see the visual record, all he could see were these fragmentary reports in Life magazine, some reports on television, but he couldn't see the essential film record of that horrible event because it was so withheld and so shocking. And it took years and years before it became part of the public record. And that was what was finally accomplished in 1999 when the film was turned over to the National Archives and Records Administration. So, any other question? Yes. Are now available for anyone to use for not only research but maybe in their own work, like Bruce Connor. Yes. The films that we preserve at the Library of Congress and the films that are at the National Archives and Records Administration are public, part of the public collection. You, the taxpayer, pay for the work that we do at the library, and our job is to make those works publicly accessible. Now, in the case of a work that's copyright protected, we can't give you a copy of a Disney film, for example, but we have a reading room where if you make a research appointment, you can come in and see it. You don't need permission. It's there on site, and the same would be at the National Archives and Records Administration. That's part of the intent of the, the, the government buying that film is so that it can be part of the public record going forward so that if anybody finds new information, new evidence, or a new interpretation, that fixed and verified public record will always be available for future generations to come in and examine. That's really why it's there. It's not to hide it or to keep it from people. It's to actually save it for people. And that's what they do at the National Archives, just as we do at the Library of Congress. Yes? Yes, you can. That's now a public domain film. So, I mean, if you go there and you want to obtain a copy, you can, you can do that, yeah. And, and as there are filmmakers who have done that. Yes? Have all the voices of the people who are commenting been identified? I don't think so. Now, I, haven't, I was trying to do some research about that, so the narrators, I, I don't know, because... I identified one from Ireland and I was just wondering was it superimposed from his visit to Ireland in, earlier on in the year? It could well be, but again, only Bruce Connor knows because you know he was doing this on his own, he was flipping channels, he was recording off of radio and so on, and it all got mixed together. And as far as I know, none of his notes survive and also, when he was recording it, he didn't try to find out who he was recording. I don't think he really cared. He just wanted to have the, the audio information about what was going on, and he mixed it all together. You know, in that sense, he was not a, a librarian, where he was very careful note-taker on what he was borrowing. 
so that might be a piece for somebody to do a PhD dissertation on someday, is to really dig back and try to find out where all the component parts of that film came from. Yes? We have many, many films that are on the internet that have been digitized by the Library of Congress, uh, particularly a lot of films made in the 1890s and into the early part of the last century, but they're all public domain. We have many, many films that are still copyright protected, and of course, we can't copy those and put them on the internet without permission from the rights holders, but yes, there are many, many films there. I think the library now has somewhere around, altogether, there's presidential papers to photographs to... Uh, Folk Life Center works and so on. Somewhere around 40 million items are now on the internet from the Library of Congress. Because it's very difficult, if you're a researcher on a graduate student in California or Alaska and you can't afford to get to Washington or buy that plane ticket, you know, so the library is trying to use the latest technologies to get these works out and make them as publicly accessible as possible. So that's our goal with these. So there's a lot of new material going up almost every day at the library on every kind of conceivable collection you can think of that would be at the library. So, and we'll continue to do that going forward. And, and as new technologies come along, we'll, we'll use those as well. Sound recordings, there's one site you can go to, for example, called the National Juke Box. And with the permission of Sony Music, we have uh, over 13,000 recordings, commercial recordings that were released in the United States prior to 1925. So now early jazz recordings and early opera recordings that haven't been commercially released in over 70 years, you can now go to on that website. So it's not just movies, it's also sound recordings and radio and television, so. Yes, yeah. For most of us, this is the only time we're gonna see this footage that was on live TV then. Uh, a preservation issue, what about the, the studios and networks? As a preservation of those original broadcasts, the uh, kinetoscopes or whatever, you know, how is that the, the network legacy preserved? Uh, well, well I, yeah. well, I don't want to get out my soapbox here, but you asked a wonderful question. You know, we, we have a society, we've produced more movies and television and radio broadcasts in the 20th century till now than any other, than all the rest of the world combined. We've, we've overwhelmed the world by how much we've produced, but we have the worst record of preserving. All NBC, CBS, ABC, their records are very poor. You cannot go to them and say, I want to see a television show from the 50s. I, I want to see Leave it to Beaver. I want to see these shows. That's, in my opinion, that's why our understanding of television is so poor, is we don't really have a really widely publicly available research collection that people can go to. We have a huge collection of television at the library, and we actively preserve a lot of television as well as radio and sound recordings. But it's, it's all here at the Library of Congress and a few other places with much smaller collections. And so we've, as a culture, we've, we've been celebrating and preserving books and we have thousands of libraries, but we have not done a very good job about collecting and preserving television and filming, making it publicly available the way we do books. Yes. Have you taken any steps toward uh, trying to preserve things from the internet? Because blogs, all sorts of websites come and go and there'll be no record of that unless somebody is. We are, there was a gentleman named Brewster Kale who has an organization called the Internet Archive and he's a, made his fortune in, in Silicon Valley. He's been archiving the internet since the year 2000. And we have been partnering with him uh, as a silent partner, uh, but there are lots of 
copyright issues about things on the, on the internet. But that's a big challenge. The conservation center that I work at has, uh, we're, it's still under construction in ways that we're building a satellite capability and when that's all completed we'll be able to ingest simultaneously 264 channels of born digital content including the internet and so that's our ambition ultimately is to get into it in a very full-fledged way because right now uh, talk radio in the United States is not being preserved or archived you know maybe the people who produce it maybe Rush Limbaugh has his master tapes but generally speaking there's no research institution where you can go and say I want to hear what people were saying on talk radio about uh, the political scene in America in the year 2002 or 2004. You, you, you can't do it. You, know, you have to be either listen to it when you're in a car or it's gone. So we, we've done a very poor job of trying to document and save audiovisual history for future generations, and that's the big challenge that, that libraries and archives are doing. Was there any, um, any um, action taken to preserve broadcasts similar to what Bruce Connor is trying to capture here around, surrounding the JFK assassination, but surrounding 9-11? Were there any lessons learned there? There were a number of efforts. We, we uh, at the library, made a, an arrangement with CNN to uh, acquire all their raw feeds, that is, all the unedited f uh, video that they were archiving and receiving from reporters from the field around the world, and I think we got over 3,000 hours of content, but there were some universities in the U.S. That, that were doing what Bruce Conner did, which was basically videotape a television or put a video cassette in a, a recorder or DVDs, and so there are some lesser archives. And the networks have saved a fair amount of material, but a lot of it's been thrown away already because they've only pulled out the, 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 the key, the, the, the 10 second or 15 or 20 second spots that show the most dramatic explosions or the most horrific scenes and the average footage of where the camera's just on recording hour after hour, they've edited that away because they're not archives and they don't tend to save things and they're not libraries and they're not museums and they don't think of themselves as having a public responsibility to save these things for future generations. So that's one reason why the libraries and archives of the museums of the United States are, are doing this. So it's, it's very important work and, and more needs to be done. Well, Thank you very much for your attention and uh, thank you for your time.